Hello, this is Arthur Jackson here. I was lucky enough to go to the IAS meeting, the International AIDS Society meeting in Amsterdam. I was only there for two days of the five-day conference, but I was there on the 24th of July and the 25th of July and took some interesting points from it. I took a few notes and I'll tell you my major findings from the conference. In one of the morning sessions on the 24th of July, um, we had a session on antiretroviral therapy strategies. And Mariana Morelas from Brazil talked about the fact that Brazil have almost a million people living with HIV, 65% men. They've had a recent policy switch going from an efavirenz-based therapy to a dolutegravir-based therapy, both with a backbone of TDF and 3TC. They found much better outcomes in terms of suppression at six months with the newer regimen of dolutegravir. Uh, they had an odds ratio of 1.4 when they were comparing those as absolute outcomes. And with historical controls, they found that the worst um, outcome was associated when lopinavir, ritonavir, and AZT were used. After that, there was a study out of Zurich that was a little bit controversial. It's well known that dolutegravir monotherapy is not recommended in a general sense. Uh, this group had a hypothesis that if someone had been already started on antiviral therapy during primary infection, that you would end up with a smaller reservoir, less likelihood of resistance, and you could switch to use dolutegravir monotherapy later on with similar outcomes. That was their hypothesis. And for these people, they had to be suppressed for a year to enroll. Um, 430 people randomized in a two-to-one fashion, and they did find there was non-inferiority, 100% response in both groups, However, there was a big outcry from the audience to say that this really wasn't a very ethical study. Uh, Longer-term follow-up may not be unethical, uh, may be unethical, and they said that the um, one of the big issues was related to the fact that um, in this study people are being followed uh, very closely, and if resistance was to occur, it would be picked up very quickly. Um, it was felt that in real-life situations, people would not be picked up as quickly and major class losing resistance could occur. Then there was another dolutegravir monotherapy study called the MONKEY study, M-O-N-C-A-Y, and they were uh, comparing dolutegravir monotherapy to dolutegravir abacavir 3TC. It was a French study with only 80 people in each arm, and they found that there were seven failures in the monotherapy arm with two resistances. In a general sense, the study was found to be non-inferior at 24 weeks, but not non-inferior beyond that. The DSMB stopped the study um, because they felt it was unethical to continue. The bottom line was that it wasn't considered good enough, and some people in the audience, audience suggested it was quite cavalier to do the study, seeing as uh, two out of seven people got intercraze resistance, and it is known that dolutegravir monotherapy is not um, a recommended uh, use, a recommended regimen. Uh, Joe Eron suggested that maybe for this type of study, non-inferiority traditional determinations are not appropriate and you should have tighter ethics. In the same session, there was a study looking at switching to Genvoya among patients who have either an M184V or an M184I. Uh, they looked at 37 patients and the hypothesis was that TAF in Genvoya may overcome the M184V because of that conferring a heightened response to tenofovir and uh, there being higher intracellular levels. 
the there were 24 week data in this study uh, no failures at all it was funded by Gilead however and there were comments from the audience saying that it was possibly weakening the results of the study to include M184i because this may not be a truly valid danger mutation like the M184V is. And then there was a professor from Argentina called Pedro Can who presented the Gemini studies um, or data from the Gemini studies. These are studies looking at dolutegravir plus 3TC and comparing it with dolutegravir plus Truvada. Uh, these are non-inferiority studies randomized naive patients and they randomized 1,400 patients. 20% uh, of them did have a very high viral load at baseline greater than 100k. Uh, the outcomes are extremely good and they're planning to follow out to week 144. Uh, they did find that results were a little bit worse among those with an extremely low CD4 count at baseline um, but they did feel that this was when they took into account the intention to treat analysis and the per protocol analysis um, was more forgiving, um, even including those subgroups. Uh, they found no resistance issues at all, and they did find less renal issues among the arm that did not have tenofovir, so among the dual therapy arm. They also, unsurprisingly, found that bone markers were worse in the tenofovir-containing arm, and there were fewer drug-related side effects in the dual therapy arm. In general, um, they found it was an effective option and there was an interesting comment from the audience that um, it is does seem to be a good option but it is harder to do on a worldwide basis in countries where there may not be appropriate hep B diagnostics or viral load monitoring. Later on that day there was a session on TB in prisons which is very interesting. The um, three pillars of TB care were considered to be integrated care, psychosocial support and research and development and one of the big issues relates to TB HIV co-infection, drug resistance and lack of high-tech resources. And they found treatment outcomes worse in prison despite the fact that you have um, a patient cohort in front of you at the time of starting therapy. They find the biggest limitation when it comes to treating people who have TB in prison is losing them to follow-up and I'm not clear whether or not that is because they will be released from prison or whether or not they're um, internally transferred in the prison service and they get lost to follow up that way. I hope it is the former, not the latter. Um, they also raised some interesting comments about not all prisoners wanting to get cured because there's better accommodation for TB patients and because of the hierarchical system in prisons, um, some of the prisoners need to get permission from their senior prisoners to proceed to getting cured from an infection. Uh, they talked about how sputum smear um, positive samples were a valid currency and uh, you could buy a smear positive sputum in the jail in order to convince your captors that you were infected. A Zimbabwean a female politician stood up, she's a member of parliament, and commented that she had a major issue trying to convince authorities that it was appropriate to use to get condoms available to prisoners um, and she her point was that it's very difficult to um, allow ongoing HIV risk among these people and that is tied in with the TB risk. Um, she seemed to be awaiting applause um, and speaking like she was in parliament looking for a response but her point was 
peripherally valid, no question. It was answered um, by one of the panel members who said that he recommends a pragmatic approach where people are not willing to accept the valid risk of um, men who have sex with men in prison. Um, he recommended that there be a, an unlocked room with condoms that can be used for conjugal visits, but the prisoners know that it remains unlocked and condoms are available in there if they need to use condoms for same-sex sex. An interesting um, presentation from Brazil talked about one Brazilian state where they check um, skin test positivity at admission to prison and found 8%, but um, when rechecked at one year found 20%. I wonder is there any role of a boosting phenomenon there? But at the same time, it does sound like there is a lot of exposure to TB in prison. Um, he did say that three prisons in that entire state have 75% of the state's recognised TB cases. They are rolling out a massive screening program of chest x-ray culture gene expert and uh, using automated chest x-ray reading programs, one of them called CAD4TB5, CAD4TB5. Um, this is a computer program that automatically looks at x-rays and um, gives you a score as to how likely a uh, active tuberculosis is. Um, he said that among his experience, 40% of all prisoners have symptoms of TB, 70% of all prisoners smoke, and 8% of all prisoners have already had TB. Later in the day, there was a talk about antiretrovirals in pregnancy and specifically focusing on the dolutegravir risk issue. Uh, the first talk basically gave an overview of HIV um, and pregnancy and talked about how all HIV pregnancies have slightly worse outcomes than HIV-negative pregnancies. Um, of all the medications, efavirenz is the safest. And looking at a retrospective um, review of the dolutegravir data, it looks quite good, it looks quite safe, but there is not a large uh, weight of evidence behind it at the moment. In the second talk, they talked about the specific case that the specific study that has been uh, giving people concerns recently. So, in 2016, Botswana changed their first line ART to a dolutegravir-based ART for everybody. The study looking into neural tube defects has been ongoing since 2014, predating the national change to a dolutegravir-based uh, regimen. Um, they, when they did their ongoing analysis, they found uh, approximately tenfold more neural tube defects than expected in those women who were exposed to dolutegravir at the time of conception. They found 86 neural tube defects out of 88,000 pregnancies, and 25% occurred in stillbirths. When they looked at those receiving dolutegravir at conception, there were four neural tube defects among 426 women who received dolutegravir conception. The confidence intervals didn't overlap and therefore it was statistically significant. They did comment that none of these women were specifically meant to be on folate. Also, there is no specific grain fortification in uh, Botswana um, as there is in many other countries fortifying it with folate. They have noticed that there has not been a recent increase in neural tube defects overall and no specific clustering by site, um, which may suggest some sort of environmental exposure. 
Um, they will be doing a um, formal analysis again in March 2019, which everyone will be waiting for. They commented that they weren't sure if it was relevant or not, but the four different neural tube defects found among those 400-plus women uh, were all different types of neural tube defect, but they don't think that specifically has um, any bearing. It was commented that perhaps there, if there is to be a silver lining relating to this, is the opportunity to integrate sexual health, family planning and HIV care um, in countries where it's needed most. Uh, they discussed the implications and options of contraception being very important. On the Wednesday, there was a session looking at latency reversal. They looked at chidamide at 10 milligrams twice a day for four weeks, only among seven participants. They found it was very safe. It was a histone acetylation action. And after giving the chidamide, they did detect plasma RNA after the doses, uh, which subsequently recovered to undetectable. Um, the overall assessment of um, proviral DNA was reduced and inflammatory markers were reduced. This may be a drug to study in the future. They also looked at Maravaroc inducing latency as a shock and kill type approach. Um, they found that it wasn't really potent enough and this was a subset of the MIRS study. There was a very interesting study out of University of North Carolina looking at sequencing viruses from patients. They identified that 72% of long-lived replication-competent virus comes from the HIV virus in the year before they started antiretroviral therapy. What they were wondering is whether or not starting ARV uh, triggers or influences the formation of the reservoir at that point. Generated two hypotheses. Does ART lead to changes to the immune system promoting latency? And does, in the next hypothesis, does ART make HIV-specific changes to the immune system, maybe stopping immune clearance of HIV-infected cells? Um, it was a very good presentation and uh, very beautiful phylogenetic trees that uh, would be worth looking up. There was a study, there was a session later on that talked about um, newer drugs and shorter courses for TB therapy. Um, they talked about 500,000 multidrug resistant TB, and of those, 9% get fully cured. Uh, there's a growing pipeline for meds, and the ones that are coming to the fore now are bedaquiline, delaminid, and Pretominid. Other drugs that have been identified are linazolid, imipenem, clofazamine, and clavulinate. They talked about the shorter treatment options for clearing MDRTB. They specifically mentioned the Bangladesh regimen, which is seven drugs used for four months, followed by four drugs used for five months. This has led to a cure rate of over 80% among this group much better than historical, but it's still reasonably nasty regimens. Um, there is a push to replace the injectable agent for MDRTB with bedaquiline. Uh, both bedaquiline and delaminid uh, can lead to QT prolongation, but in a safety observational study um, who needed both bedaquiline and delaminid, 
it found that among those patients it actually was well tolerated without a, an excessively prolonged QT. Um, there was a study looking at XDRTB and these patients received bedaquiline pretominid linazolid and found an 88% cure and this was one study only but it was considered to be amazing. Moving on to latent TB infection, they studied um, a comparison between rifapentine and isoniazid weekly for three months versus rifapentine and isoniazid daily for four weeks, and they found that the four-week regimen was non-inferior to the three-month regimen, and this included HIV patients and is considered to be very good. They also looked at other good options, including four months of uh, rifampicin and one month of bedaquiline and also a much shorter regimen of only two weeks bedaquiline given with pyrazinamide looks very promising. That's something that's being looked at at the moment. And the final session that I took specific notes in related to hepatitis B virus, and uh, they commented that hepatitis B leads to 66% of deaths from all viral hepatitis. And um, when you look at that, it's um, 300,000 per year dying of hepatocellular carcinoma. 500,000 per year dying of cirrhosis and 100,000 per year dying of acute hepatitis B, something that I was surprised by. There is a push to aim for elimination of hepatitis B by 2030, but they commented that a lot of research and development will have to take place before then because of some of the um, obstacles. Most of the elimination associated with hepatitis B is driven by a push for vaccination um, the obvious trouble with the hepatitis B treatment is that as it stands at the moment, uh, the virus is non-clearable due to it persisting in covalently closed circular DNA. Uh, when highlighting how important the problem was, they identified that only about 9% of people in Africa who have hepatitis B know they have hepatitis B. And of those, about 9% need treatment but only about 9% do get that treatment. So there's a huge improvement in that treatment cascade that needs to be done. This was just a little hodgepodge selection of some sessions. There is some very good blog updates from um, Paul Sachs and others of the other data that, uh, that's come out of IAS, but I'm glad to share my recent experiences